Thank you, uh, Glenda, Linda, and Daniel for leading us in worship, and good morning, everyone. Anyone ever heard of the name Jim Fix? Anyone? Even you athletic-looking types? Never heard of Jim Fix. Jim Fix, more well-known in the uh, 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, was uh, a famous runner. Uh, Not just a runner, he actually wrote the book, The Complete Guide to Running, and was known world over for his expertise on running, his training of those who ran. Uh, And for those who knew him well, his belief that running could pretty well trump any medical issue. However, on a daily run at the age of 52 near his home in Vermont, uh, he fell dead with a massive heart attack. Uh, And uh, afterwards, it was discovered... uh, Uh, revealed by his wife that for years he had not gone uh, for a physical. Uh, And when they performed an autopsy on him, it was discovered that three of his arteries were almost entirely clogged. And so here you have this guy, Jim Fix, who on the outside looked like a perfectly fit human being, looked like he had it all together as far as a runner was concerned, a perfect human specimen, and yet on the inside, things weren't well. Things weren't healthy. And I think that well-known phrase would perfectly describe Jim Fix, looks at times can be deceiving. And that phrase is a reality that we come across, even if you don't recognize it or are thinking about it, We come across that reality every day in life. Have you ever picked up a perfect-looking apple and taken a bite into it only to discover that it's soft or it's brown or worse yet, half of a worm is showing? (laughs) Looks can be deceiving. Have you ever bought a used car and fell victim to the reality that looks can be deceiving. I bought a 1970 Oldsmobile Cutlass off a lady from work. This is going back years ago. Mint looking car. Interior, no rips. Tires, perfect condition. Ran like a charm. I was driving it one day and I noticed that something was going a little bit off in the suspension or in the tie, in the steering. And so I brought it to a friend who was a mechanic and left it with him. I said, can you just, you know, maybe it needs an alignment. I don't know. A couple hours later, he called me. He says, Brent, I got your car up on the hoist. I can't fix this car. I go, why can't you fix the car? He says, I had to bring it down from the hoist. I said, why was that? He said, because when I had it on the hoist, it bent like a pretzel. Your, your whole frame is totally rusted through. Looks can be deceiving. That reality is true, as we saw with a human being by the name of Jim Fix, in all sorts of other human beings we meet. I'm sure we can all think of politicians or salesmen or saleswomen who their initial response to us, their initial promises seemed really promising, 
But then we got to know what they really were about, and we have to conclude looks can be deceiving. And what's really terrifying about that reality that looks can be deceiving is that that reality is commonplace amongst those who profess to be religious. You can, you can claim to have religion. You can look like you've got it all together. You can have perfect church attendance. You could sing in the choir. You could help out in the nursery. You could prepare the coffee. You could usher. You can greet at the door. You can sing. You can pray. You can put money in the offering box. You can look like the perfect religious specimen, but on the inside, things aren't well. Looks can be deceiving. And here's the scary part. You might be able to fool others. You may even deceive yourself, but God can't be fooled. And you see, religion that does not go beyond mere words or outer appearance is not acceptable or pleasing to God. Rather, as we've seen week after week after week in our series on James's letter, it's the proper response to the gospel that results in a changed life. And that changed life demonstrates itself, manifests itself in the things that we do, in the attitudes and values that we adopt in the life that we live. And what's really scary is that you can go through life busying yourself with all sorts of religious activity, looking like you've got it all together, and yet in the eyes of God, it's meaningless. It's worthless. And you might as well have joined the rest of the world and on a beautiful day like today gone fishing. I got, I got to get, uh, stop for a moment because there's a word that I've said four or five times that really bugs me. And maybe you're cringing too. I grew up to understand that the word religious or religion was like fingernails on a chalkboard right? I'm not religious. I just love the Lord. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship, right? Anyone else? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. But here's my difficulty this morning. In the passage that I'm assigned, James uses the word religious and religion. So I have to deal with the word religious and the word religion, But what's nice is James defines religion the same way I would define religion or religious activity. When James uses these words, he's talking about the the outward aspects of one's professed faith. And in our context, we're talking about Christianity. So he's defining religion as the outer aspects of one's professed faith. Maybe a word that's helpful is ritual. 
our, our outer rituals that we perform. So I already listed a bunch of things. Church attendance, praying, giving, singing, being in the choir, teaching Sunday school. All these different things is what James would define as religion or religious activity, the outer aspects of our faith. And here's James' concern that we're going to see in these verses and we're going to hear continually throughout the book is that you can busy yourself with religious activity. You can perfect Christianese, but fail to pass the test. And that, that leads us to some really important questions. How can we be sure that our religion, remember, the outer aspects of our faith, our rituals, our activity, the stuff that everyone sees, how can we be sure that our religion is acceptable and pleasing to God? Another way to ask the question, to go a little bit deeper and more personal How can we be sure that we're not just fooling other people and deceiving ourselves, but rather our religious activity, the things that people see us do, the things that we do, are actually evidence, manifestations of the fact that we are the real deal. We are the genuine article that looks aren't deceiving that we have properly responded to this gospel message and what people see in the way that we live our life is real, genuine life change. And so in the two verses we're going to look at this morning, James gives three signs or some want to say that they're three tests to examine ourselves by. And what James says is if you have experienced real gospel change, it will impact your conversation. It will impact your compassion. And it will impact your character. The religion that is acceptable and pleasing to God is the direct result of someone who has properly responded to the gospel and is living out this life change. And they're careful with what they say. They have a desire to... to, offer aid and to assist those who are helpless and in distress. And they do everything they can with God's help to keep themselves from being morally compromised by the world. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you've got your Bible uh, turned to James, hopefully it's a familiar spot in your Bible now. Uh, We're at the very end of uh, chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 26 and 27. And you may be thinking, boy, some of the things that Brent has already said almost sound like they can't be true. They don't sound biblical. Let me tell you what James says. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James pulls no punches. He cuts right to the chase. 
You don't have to wonder what James is thinking. He just says it. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And last Sunday we were away and I was preaching elsewhere and I was challenging those who were there with uh, uh, the text of Joshua 24. And, And the gist of my message was a challenge to consider how serious you really are or they were uh, about their decision, their choice to be devoted to and to serve God. And it was a pretty, for some, probably an uncomfortable, a pretty cutting message. Uh, I asked some questions that I think would be pretty tough for all, everyone, including me, to have to honestly answer out loud. So I didn't make anyone ans- answer the questions out loud. But I, I asked them questions like, if, you know, if, if someone was to talk about what they see in your life, what would they say is the most important thing in your life? Uh, what's, what's the first priority when it comes to your schedule? What is your passion? What's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? Where does your identity, your sense of worth, come from? And I shared with them Joshua and his, his dying days, bringing the Israelites before him and just challenging him, say, you've got to serve someone. As for me and my family, we choose God. But you, you've got to serve someone, whether it's the gods of your forefathers, the Egyptians, the Babylonian gods, the gods of the locals that were here amongst that, that appeal to the senses and to the emotions, or whether it be Yahweh, you have to choose someone. And as for me and my house, we choose God. So there was, wow, I just did a 35-minute message in about a minute, I think. But after the message, I had Several people who I know quite well, who in my mind, I would have thought, boy, that was an uncomfortable message for them. I wonder what they thought. They were probably glad that I was done. But they came up to me afterwards, Brent, that was a great message. That was so good. Really enjoyed what you had to say. And of course, I said, thank you. And I walk away scratching my head. And so as we were, I think it was when we were going home or maybe the next day, Allison and I were having a conversation and I I shared this word. I I said, like, how did so-and-so really mean that they enjoyed my message? Like, wouldn't that not have been uncomfortable, what they heard? Like, we kind of see how they live their life. I don't think they are very serious about a choice for God if they've made a choice for God at all. And Allison said they probably think they already have chosen God. I thought, how deceived can people be of themselves? And then I come to the text for today, and James says, those who consider themselves religious, and a little bit further on, deceive themselves. And the word deceive here comes from a word that actually means to lie to one's own heart about themselves. To lie to your own heart about yourself. And in these verses, James points to probably the most oldest, most common version of deception that's known in history. And that is to busy oneself with religious activity to mask one's reality. And this is of great concern to James. And so he gives us three tests. Three tests that we can use to examine our own profession of faith. To justify our religious activity. 
Are we genuine? Are we the real deal? Or are we just living a life of deception? In verse 26, we come to that first test, that first sign. And James says that if you have properly responded to the gospel, if you have a true religion that's pleasing and acceptable to God, you will be careful with the words you say. What is it that you say? What do you hear What do you learn about yourself as you listen to yourself speaking? Now, I'm able to do that. Is that other people able to hear themselves as they talk? I'm the only person here that has this strange ability. Like literally, I can be preaching to you and happens many Sundays. I can be preaching to you and I'm having a conversation with myself. Did I really say that? Why is no one laughing? Why do they look bored? Do they not believe me? Do I really mean that? These conversations go on. And and just in normal everyday life, I hear myself speaking. And what am I learning about myself when I listen to myself speak? It happened last night, and I never have apologized to Jack, and I don't see him here, so uh, we'll talk about that later. But (laughs) we were watching a movie, and, and, and Jack kept interrupting with these random facts from TikTok. And we said, Jack, we're watching a movie. Like, you know, save it. But he kept doing it. He did it again. And I looked at Jack. I said, Jack, I do not have any interest right now in what you have to say. And that was it. And I heard myself say that. I said, what in the world am I saying? How harsh. How unkind. What a horrible father thing to say. That was another moment in my dad jerk list. I heard myself, what is it that you hear yourself say when you listen to yourself talk? What do you learn about yourself? You know, there's a nursery rhyme that is an outright lie. It says the sticks and stones can hurt my bones or break my bones, but, but names will never hurt me or whatever, however it goes now. I just destroyed a nursery rhyme. But it's a lie. Because broken bones and open wounds heal much quicker than wounds that are caused by careless and hurtful words. But the flip side is true also. Amazing things happen as a result of a right word at the right moment. Speech is powerful. The world exists because God spoke it into existence. Love comes alive when it's articulated. We're all married who are married because we said, I do. And James recognizes the importance of words. And he says, if you have properly responded to the gospel, if your religious activity is acceptable and pleasing to God, you are going to be one who keeps a tight rein on your tongue. Your version of the Bible may say something about a bridle. Anyone have horses coming to mind? A tight rein? Well, that, that's James' intention. In James's day, horses were important. Transportation, for work, horses were valuable. They were important. 
they did lots of good and useful things if you could get them to do what you wanted them to do. Because if you know anything about horses, sometimes they can have a mind of their own. And a horse that's out of control isn't very useful. In fact, it can be very dangerous. And that's what James says here. So is it with our tongue. It can be used to bless. It can be used to comfort. It can be used to love. But it can also be used in many dangerous and harmful ways. Do we have control over our tongue? What are some examples of an unbridled or a tongue that's not kept in tight rein? Well, here's a list that I found. Vulgarity, obscenity, indecent language, dirty jokes, off-color stories, racial or ethnic insults, humor meant to insult or to put someone down, angry outbursts, harsh words, Mean-spirited comments, gossip, rumors, false accusations, imputing bad motives, public criticism of your spouse or children, yelling and screaming, threats and intimidating comments, endless criticism, quick-cutting comments, cheap shots, talking too much, talking without listening, condemning others, exaggerating the faults of others, excusing unkind words by saying, I was only joking. And I'm sure the list could go on. Do you, do I keep a tight rein on our tongue? And here's a scary fact that I came across when I was studying this passage. The average human being speaks 16,000 words a day. To help you visualize that, and I'm in the printing industry, so this makes a whole lot more sense to me than it may to you, a little 64-page novel, 32 sheets of paper, is about the average amount of words a human being says in the course of a day. Over the course of a week, the average human being speaks enough words to fill a John Grisham or James Patterson novel. About 450, 460 words a week. Carry that math on to the end of a year. It's like five volumes of the encyclopedia, for those who remember what encyclopedias look like. Imagine someone was to read each day the book that represented your words for the day. What would they learn about you? What would they learn about how you treat your children or your spouse? What would they learn about how we think about our friends, our neighbors, the people we go to church with? What would they learn about how we react when the going gets rough? What would they learn about how we respond when people criticize us? It's a scary thought. How how do we keep a tight rein on our tongue? I don't know about you, I found myself on that list a few times. Maybe more than a few. How do we keep a tight rein on our tongue? We're going to talk a little about about this near the end of the message. But Jesus said in Matthew that what comes out of your mouth simply an overflow of what's in your heart. So that tells me that at first step, we need a total cleansing of the heart. And that happens when we respond properly to the gospel message. 
But we need to have a daily intake of that which is good for our heart, that which is good for our mind, because garbage in, garbage out, right? We say that to our kids all the time. Some of us need to learn that ourselves as adults. We want to keep a tight rein on our tongue. It begins with what we're putting into our heart, because our heart simply overflows through our mouth, unfortunately, or fortunately. But the elephant in the room question, and then we've got to move on to the second test. The elephant in the room question is, like, I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but my guess is pretty well all of us fail on perfectly keeping a tight rein on our tongues. I figure that's safe to assume. So according to James, does that mean that it's impossible that we can actually be a real Christian, that we're not the real deal? I don't think that's what James is saying. I think what James is saying is that if you busy yourself with all sorts of religious activity, you master Christianese, you have everything looking good on the outside, and yet you don't try nor do you care about what comes out of your mouth. That you compare yourself to others and say, well, I'm as good as them, so it's okay. I'm content with how I am. If that is the attitude of your heart, then you need to go way back to the first step. Have you properly responded to the gospel message which results in life change? Life change is evidenced in the way that we live and the things that we say. And if the things we say do not give any evidence that there is real life change, you need to go back and examine your profession of faith. That's what James is saying. So that's the first test. That's the first sign. Real life change, real gospel change impacts our conversation. And then in verse 27, James lists two more. And the first thing he says is that real gospel change impacts our compassion. That we should have a desire to reach out and to assist those who are helpless and who are in distress. <coughs> Excuse me. And in James' day... Two categories that fit that description of a helpless person in distress were widows and orphans. They, they didn't have the social uh, safety nets like we do today. And so a widow or an orphan who didn't have anyone to care or provide for them was in a desperate, desperate situation. But the Bible makes it very clear that, that the widows and orphans did have someone who cared very much for them. The Bible tells us that God is compassionate, wants to show kindness, makes widows and orphans a priority in his concerns. The psalmist says that God is the father of the fatherless and the defender of the orphans, or sorry, the defender of the widows. And throughout Scripture, we are called to imitate God that the passions and desires that we are to adopt are our fathers. You know, I always admire kids that take over the family business, especially when it's a family business that may be struggling a bit or needs a lot of work. There's a family business I think we all need to be part of. God's family business of caring for those who are helpless, and who are in distress. 
It's interesting. James says, oh yeah, I knew there was something I wanted to say. I, I, I don't want us to misunderstand James, and I've got to say this. James isn't saying that what we do validates our claim of faith. And we're going to see that in a couple of weeks, definitely. James isn't saying that what we do validates our faith. Rather, what we do is evidence of our faith. So the most important thing is not what we do, our rituals. They are important. There's nothing bad or wrong of rituals and the things that we do, religious activity in and of themselves. But what James wants us to understand is that the greatest priority, the most important thing is the motives behind what we do. And so what James is saying is if you've experienced real gospel change, then you have a faith that works, which is the title of our series. You have a faith that works. You have a faith that wants to roll up its sleeves and get involved in this dirty, hurting world. It doesn't just look at all the needs that there are and think compassionate thoughts and say some nice words and then just walk away. No, it, it, it involves rolling up our sleeves. James says, religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows. The, word look at, the words look after here comes from a phrase that means to visit. And I know those of you who are here this morning, you're on the front lines of ministry. You appreciate those who sit back and write checks. You appreciate those who get on their knees in their quiet place and pray for your ministry. But the idea that James is trying to get across here is that it requires more. That if you have properly responded to the message of the gospel to the best of your ability... And in the ways that God has equipped you, you get involved. You go and visit. You go and help. You go and assist. You provide comfort. You provide aid to those who are widows, orphans, single moms, single dads, those who are elderly, those who are uh, dealing with disabilities, those who are immigrants into our country, those who, who are speaking up for the unborn, the pregnancy Support services. We roll up our sleeves and we get involved because real gospel change impacts our compassion for those who are helpless and are hurting and in distress. And then there's the one final test that James gives us in verse 27. And one thing I should have mentioned also, this isn't an exhaustive list. Like, it's, like it, these are the three tests and you know, there's no more. I mean, James could probably make a, quite a lengthy list, but these are three subjects he's going to talk about again uh, as we move our way through the letter. And so I just wanted to say that. But the third one he mentions here is that real gospel change impacts our character. And he says that if you have been changed by the gospel, then you are going to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And James uses the word, the word world, just like many uh, writers in Scripture use that word world, to mean the lifestyle, the behaviors, the, the attitudes, the values, the mindset, the worldview of those who have no regard for God, who are estranged from God, their Creator. 
right? And James has already told us, those of us who have properly responded to the message of the gospel, we have been reconciled through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we're no longer estranged from God. We're in right relationship with God. And what James is saying is that we should want nothing to do with the old way. We want nothing to do with the sin that caused us to be in wrong relationship with God because Jesus dealt with the sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin. So why would we want anything to do with that which contaminates and pollutes the rest of the world? Does that make sense? Right? I remember, this is going back years ago when my dad was in his last months, I guess, and he was, I think it was St. Mike's Hospital, and I can't remember if it was Jack or Graham with me, and we went to visit him, and they felt he had some disease that uh, was contagious. And so to go into the room, we had to take great precautions. And so whatever son was with me at the time, I can just remember the two of us having to put booties on, a gown on, mask, and this is pre-COVID, and a, a thing over our head to go in and visit my dad. And on the way out, the same Routine. We had to take all that stuff off. Why? Because we had to take precautions that we didn't go in and catch this communicable, communa, you know what I'm trying to say, disease. And at the same time when we left, that we didn't take it with us and that we didn't spread it. And so it seemed kind of silly at the time to make all these, do all these things, but I get it, right? Like, does it make sense why we take precautions, right? We don't want to catch it. We don't want to spread it. If all of that makes sense, why is it that there are people who profess to be followers of Jesus, fill their life with all sorts of religious activity, make it look like everything's really good and healthy, and yet live their life with one foot in the world? Enjoying certain aspects of the world throwing caution in the wind about certain aspects of the world. Does that make sense? One commentator illustrated it by, by saying, imagine I had a, a glass of water. Would you want to drink it? Well, if you were thirsty, sure. But if I told you it had 1% of poison in it, who would drink it? None of us. Because that makes no sense. That would be absolutely ridiculous. And James says it's absolutely ridiculous. If you have had real life change, you've properly responded to the gospel. And remember, I think Al or Brian or a mixture of the two last messages has said the proper response to the gospel is to accept it, to believe it, and then to do, to live it. If you've experienced that, why would you want to play with the contamination of the world. And so James says, here's a test. Are you keeping yourself from being morally compromised? Are you keeping yourself from being contaminated or polluted by the world? And if you put the second and third test together, there's a real challenge. 
Because the second thing that James has said is that if you have experienced real gospel change, then you should have a desire to roll up your sleeves and get involved in a dirty, hurting world. But that dirty, hurting world's filled with sin. And yet now we're saying, but if you have experienced real gospel change, then you should be doing everything you can to keep yourself from being polluted. How do the two go together? And I would suggest two simple answers. Sound, simple sounding answers involve lots of work. Understand who you are and understand whose you are. Understand who you are and understand whose you are. Let's start with the second one. Understand whose you are. I say this to my kids all the time. I've shared this with you many times. We are God's children. We represent God's family. Keep that in mind everywhere you go, into every dirty, hurting place that you go. I represent God and his family. And then understand who you are. I know my limitations. I know places I just can't go. I know things I can't hear, I can't look at. I know company that I can't allow myself to be around. That's me. I know whose I am and I know who I am and I believe that God is going to put me in places where the two of those things work perfectly together. And the equation's probably going to be a little bit different for all of us because some of you can go into places I can't go into and represent God and his family well. Understand who you are. Understand whose you are. How do we keep ourselves from being polluted by the world? And I've said this so many times, it's probably like a broken record, but I'll say it again. The Bible. Get into God's Word. Devote yourself into the study of Word, of the Word. Apply it to your life. Obey it. To find your delight in it. Meditate on it. That's why I had them read Psalm 1. Read Psalm 1. Memorize Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who meditates on the law of God. I was thinking as I was showering this morning, you know, I know there's some people here and you're going to go, I don't, I don't like reading. I find it so hard. If that's the answer to how I keep myself from being polluted by the world is getting into God's word and studying it and making it what I obey and, and my guide for life, but I don't like to read, that's really challenging. And the answer I could only come up with is I think that the writers of Scripture, if they were being honest, would say, too bad. Get into God's word anyways. Make what is really difficult into something that becomes a habit that eventually will become a delight. Get into God's Word. When we were born, I don't think we delighted in breathing. It's just something we do, right? And if we don't, Rod, Helen, if we don't breathe when we're first born, what do you do? You smack us. Some of you need a smack. Get into God's Word. That's how we keep ourselves from the pollution of the world. That's how we find out whose we are, who we are. That's how we fill our heart and our minds with things that will overflow from our mouth or out of our mouth, from our heart. Get into God's word.
What is the religion that's pleasing and acceptable to God? How can we be sure that our religious activity is evidence that we are the real deal? James gives us three ways, three signs, three tests. We're careful with what we say. We have a desire to help those who are in need. And finally, we do everything in our power and with God's help to keep ourselves from being contaminated by the world while at the same time being in the world, offering aid, offering assistance, and most of all, offering a savior. Daniel, why don't you guys come up and lead us in a song as we make our way into communion.